You're listening to Sober Exposure with me, Jennifer Wilde. If it's about recovery, we're going to cover it. It's like a big group therapy session, but it's free. (gasps) Welcome to Sober Exposure with me, Jennifer Wilde. Let's go. Sober Exposure, here we go again. It's Jennifer Wilde and another episode. So, you know, the thing is, is every single time I come on the mic, it's like, oh my God, you guys, this is the best. I have the best guest. And this time I really do. And then, and then the next uh, episode, that one will be the best guest. But I am, I'm super excited for today's show. And the funniest thing is when I started Sober Exposure, it was like, I just, I wanted to have, I just wanted to have a show about like musicians and rock stars that are sober and play rock and roll music and for some for some reason it's just turned out to be a show about um amazing stories in recovery and like super super amazing people that have just been through like shit serious shit not just run of the mill shit i mean you're you're going to hear what i'm talking about i mean we had we had chris l and nobody thought that we were going to be able to top that story and it's not like this is a competition of topping stories it's just that this this story could be a movie and get ready for the ride of your life because actually it is going to be a movie. So I have I have a great guest and he's a super guy. And as a matter of fact, I met him because I was on Facebook and I was really lonely and uh, I was looking, you know, for a hot guy for a night. And no, I'm just kidding, sort of. But I, I saw JB and I started like hating on him on Facebook and we started talking and then I realized, oh, my God. This guy is just like, he, he's, he's talking too healthy. He's not sick. I, I need a sick guy, you know? And then I realized he was in the program. And then we started talking. I realized he was from my hometown and he used to listen to me on the radio. And then um, I found out that he had this amazing story and he was all about recovery. So I had to have him on Sober Exposure. JB, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yes. The legendary Jen Wild. I cannot believe I'm actually speaking with you. Oh gosh, whatever, please. Come on. <laughs> most, most of the people that listen to sober exposure, it means nothing to them. I'm just, I'm just a drunk and an addict just like them. You know, that's all I am. They don't, a Jen Wild smiled. Let's talk about um, why you're here, what's going on. So really now I was saying how the show is all about just spreading the message and yeah. really how anybody can get sober under any circumstances. I had some crazy circumstances just growing up the way I grew up in the rock and roll lifestyle and everything. And it was hard with sex, drugs and rock and roll all around me. And and you have an amazing story. So let's start with the beginning. Well, I'll do my best to, to top Chris. You know, I mean, he and I are friends, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I will start with, uh, you know, just back home, you know, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Cleveland rocks, baby. That's right. And um, I'm the youngest of a. Of 11 kids, uh, grew up uh, in a very, very strict Irish Catholic home. And typically, I could probably end the story right there and everybody gets it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, if I were to ask, if, if someone were to ask me, how did I feel when I was growing up? And the one word that I would use to describe how I felt was terrified. Um, oh. I had two older brothers uh, that were monsters in my life. Um, I had a father that um, 
my earliest memory um, was at four years old. And um, I took just an unmerciful beating from him that I think changed me for the rest of my life. I, um, it was the last time I ever told him the truth. I uh, walked up to his bedroom um, after he had gotten home from work. I did not want to go up there because I know knew how he was when he got home from work. And um, so I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and I'm crying. And he asked me why I'm crying. And I told him the truth. I said, I didn't want to come up and say hi to you uh, because I'm afraid of you. Huh. And um, he proceeded to pick me up by the hair and, and to throw me from one side of the room to the next. And, um, you know, clumps of hair came out and I, uh, I can remember that pain like it happened this morning. And um, I don't remember how I got out of that room, but I ended up in the, in a crawl space in the basement hiding there. And I can remember, I mean, I, I'm somewhat hyperventilating right now, just remembering the experience. And I was in that crawl space and I can remember my sister Maureen coming down there, talking to me, trying to console me. And I, and I love my sister Maureen. And I, you know, she, um, she was just trying to comfort me, and but there was no consoling, uh, consoling me uh, through that. No, I and, don't see how uh, there could be. Yeah, I, I just want to preface. I want to tell everyone first of all that JB right now, um, it, it doesn't take like a therapist to figure it out. I mean, JB is he's a beast. How how tall are you? I'm a shade over six five. Okay, now this is not a tall, skinny six five. I mean, this dude like. Arnold Schwarzenegger muscles like crazy. And um, I know I'm jumping ahead, but maybe that experience and the fear and everything had something to do with the fact that you wanted to get like real big. Oh, there's no question about it because um, it, it, you know, what I found was the solution in my life, which, which happened to be athletics to get me out of the house. Mm -hmm. And um, I needed to escape and athletics helped me do that. And, uh, and I discovered that, you know, I could be whoever I wanted to be out on that field. And, um, and, and then I would find my next solution, which was alcohol. And, uh, and I found that I could be whoever I wanted to be in the real world because of how that made me feel. And, um, for the next 15 years, you know, or until I was about 30, that worked. And, yeah. um, and then Las Vegas happened. <laughs> uh oh! And I guess right here on, on sober exposure, it's not what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You have to tell us it is sober exposure. Expose it. I can't wait to hear about Vegas, baby. Oh yeah. Uh, let me tell you something. What happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas. <laughs> so there I am. You know, uh, athletic. My athletic career is over, um, and I'm still drinking. And I'm about thirty years old now, and. And I have the brilliant idea of, hey, well, listen, we're just going to go to Las Vegas and tear it up. And, uh, and and that's what I did. So I um, I was out there. I was drinking all day. I, uh, I ended up in the Treasure Island in the casino there. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, and a brawl breaks out. You know, I, I, I used to like to tell the story that all my friends started the fight. But, you know, probably the truth is more like somebody looked at me the wrong way. <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, I'm going to kick your ass because my dad treated me like shit growing up, but I'm going to take it out on you. That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
when I played football, I mean, I would bring all that anger, frustration, and fear, and I would make the she- the trees shake for sure. But uh, and that's the way I fought. And um, so a brawl ensued there. Um, I don't know how I didn't get arrested at the Treasure Island, but I was not so fortunate when I landed at the at the Luxor, and those same guys uh, found me there, and we got into a fight on the casino floor. And all mayhem broke loose. Uh, chips flying all over the place. Uh, t- tables damaged. <laughs> That's going to be the best scene in your movie right there. I can't oh, wait I to see it. <laughs> and um, so, of course, you know, I get tackled by a bunch of security guys. And uh, and they take me downstairs and hold me there. And I don't know what the laws are out in Vegas now, but there's a at that time, there was like a 48 to 72 hour mandatory cooling off period, which, you know, all parties involved would be taken out to the desert, you know, booked and you're sitting in a jail cell. And Jen, I mean, listen, you know, black's my color. I mean, orange is not the new black, (laughs) you know, so there I am sitting in a jail cell with my designer orange jumpsuit. <laughs> hot. That's so hot, JB. I know. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget it because um, it was, uh, it was, I, I had, I mean, my whole life flashed before me. It was, uh, you know, kind of like that uh, Charles Dickens novel, Christmas Carol, hmm. where the past, the present and the future visit me. And, uh, and there I was sitting on that, uh, on that jail cell floor. And uh, I could see all the events of my past. I could see the broken relationships, the car wrecks, the fights, the lost opportunities. I mean, I'm the youngest of 11 kids. And, you know, most of my family's not in my life, you know, not because they're such jerks. I mean, I certainly had a hand in that. Uh And, uh, and in every one of those situations, there were two two things involved, me and alcohol. And then I could see my present situation. You know, here I am. All my best efforts landed me right here. I had a, a great uh, athletic career. Uh, uh, and I was on my way. Um, I was a C-level executive at a, at a company at this time. And here I am sitting on a jail cell floor in Las Vegas. And um, and then I could see into the future. I could see that if me and alcohol continued to be friends, that uh, there was going to be more visits to jail cells and institutions. Mm-hmm. And, it was going um, nowhere good. So this was sort of, sort of in a way, your spiritual awakening, kind of. Yeah, I was. I remember sitting on that floor. And if you've ever been in a jail cell, there's like a slit, a window. Yeah, it's once or okay. twice, JB. I've been in a jail cell just once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, so, so yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So there's yeah. an opaque slit, a, a slit of glass where light is coming in, and I could feel like I didn't, I didn't see the light. I felt the heat of my consequences, mm. and um, that was the first time in my life that I willingly got on my knees. And asked for help. I mean, I had rejected all forms of religion. Um, I didn't have a relationship with God or my higher power. I did not have, um, I didn't know how to pray. Uh, And, you know, so I was lost. Uh, But in this moment, I was not. 
And this is the first time I willingly, literally got on my knees in that cell. And I said a prayer that it suggested that we don't say, but it was the only prayer I knew how to say, and I meant it. And it was a foxhole prayer, and it was just simply like this. God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll never drink again. And he did his part, and to this point, I've done mine. That was November 26th of 2001. Wow. And then I would immerse myself into the recovery life, um, and I would uh, be catapulted into a relationship with the God of my understanding that I had never experienced before, that personal relationship. And I was, I was forever changed. Hmm. But... This is when things get interesting for me. Yep. Here comes the butt. The butt's going to be great. Well, I like to say and. (laughs) Son, she said, have I got a little story for you? Yeah. So, um, and that's when the Department of Justice came knocking on my door uh, and presented an opportunity for me. And it was to um, infiltrate domestic terrorist organizations. And... uh, I had 24 hours to make a decision, and it. Uh, and I like to say that uh, this is how my disease shapeshifts. Um, it could no longer fool me with a drink in front of me and say, "Drink me." So oftentimes, our what our disease will do, it'll show up in a different form. Uh, it might come in the form of a person. Um, it might come in the form of material things, and in my case, it came in the form of a job. So I, I need to ask you this, and I'm so sorry to like you know interrupt it. Something like that. Why? Why you? How come? They, how come they chose you? Why did they come to JB? Well, I think it goes back to when I was a student at John Carroll University, is where it began. Mm-hmm. I was taught by Dr. Thomas Evans. Um, he is a he was a forensic behavior analyst for the CIA, and he was my student advisor. And then I became his TA. And we were incredibly close, and we did a lot of work in uh, the area of hypnosis as it related to um, athletic performance and academic performance. So I worked with him for a couple of years doing that and got a bunch of the other football players involved, like my best friend, Greg Roman, who's the uh, assistant head coach and offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, he jumped on board. And um, so Tom would always say, you know, JB, you're the perfect guy. You're exactly what they look for. And I didn't pay much attention to it, but I did apply a few years later. And I remember during that interview, they kept on asking me a lot about China. And and I remember, you know, leaving that going, oh, gosh, did I butcher that? And, mm-hmm. and I never heard anything from them. And, uh, and and I and the reason why I know that that was probably the beginning was because many years later, they would ask me what assignment I would want next, and they and they said, "Hey, do you want to learn Mandarin and go to China?" And I was <laughs> like, "Oh, you guys have been watching me for years." Wow. Um, so I think that's that's where it began, um, because uh, based off of his recommendation, and. Um, so, you know, I think that also I hadn't effectively dealt with my character defects, which is the reason why I would I bit on that job. 
because when they showed up, I, you know, I remember having a little bit of pride and a little bit of an ego trip going, uh, yep, they finally figured out who I am. You know, I'm the only guy for the job. <laughs> yeah. It sounded like a glamorous job too. I'm, I'm sure at the time. Right. Yeah, and you know, you know, it's a, a job that I think a lot of, a lot of guys maybe even dream of. And, yeah. um, but I can tell you this, I went into that thinking I was Superman and I would discover that I'm just a man because doing that work brought me to my knees and, you know, all the principles and all the work that we do in those rooms and in recovery, I started working them backwards and, um, all the way down to that, to the beginning where, where life is unmanageable and you're standing on that dash looking in the wrong direction. Um, I had been through some things and, and, and during that work, um, so my job would be to go in to these domestic terrorist cells and I would have to identify what it was that they were planning. Um, Oftentimes, it's not the entire organization that's doing it. It's, you know, a small group of people or what they call these lone wolves. And um, and I was, I was good at it. I was darn good at it. But it came at a great price. And, um, and I cracked. I cracked hard. And uh, I couldn't do it anymore. So, and what is it that you had to do? Uh, well, for example... Um, you have to identify, you know, who the, who the, where the danger is coming from. Um, they might be, you know, it could be something as simple as they're, they're funding their organization through the sale of narcotics. Um, they're planning, um, uh, a terrorist, uh, a, a terrorist plot. They're going to blow up buildings and blow up subways. Um, to destabilize our economy. Uh, they might be planning assassinations. Um, you know, so those were the things that I would have to go in and discover, um, inform on, and in some cases stop. And um, how would you stop it? Well, oftentimes it would be just a matter of, of getting involved in the planning. Well, I'll give you one example for, for example, um, there was a, a time where uh, a group of people were going to commit um, several murders. And the only way uh, for me to, to stop it was to become part of the planning of it. And um, so as they were traveling interstate to go do this, they were, they were going to meet up with another group uh, at a rally point and then go on from there to commit these acts. Now, when they got there, um, they, um, they were tipped off by uh, one of the uh, sheriffs um, because oftentimes in federal law enforcement is, is conducting operations in a county. They have to uh, let local law enforcement know that of their presence. And so this organization had people in the sheriff's department um, and they tipped them off. So they knew that they had an informant within the organization. And since there was only a handful of people 
that were involved in the planning of it, uh, immediately those individuals would come under come under question, and I was one of those individuals. Mm-hmm. So, um, that that situation gets stopped, and I get called in to a meeting, and I, and I know exactly what's going to happen. Um, they're going to point the finger right at me, and. Um, and I remember driving there and my whole life flashing before me and I could see all the people I cared about, all the things that were important in my life. Um, I can remember praying before walking in there. And what I went through when I was in there um, was their, let me just say their interrogation tactics are quite rudimentary and involved a lot of pain. Hmm. And um and I went through that. I didn't crack. I um, I successfully was able to point the finger at somebody else whom they could not find. And the reason why they could not find him was because he was holed up with, with his mistress that he didn't tell anybody about. But I knew about it because it was my job to find out everything there is to know about somebody. So since he, since he had disappeared, I was able to, uh, to point the finger at him. But then I put him in danger along with that other person. So I was able to get out of there and I was the only person that knew where he was. So I had to go and find them first. Huh. And um, I didn't know how I was going to convince them to come with me. And that was, I, I, you know, I didn't know how that was going to go down. It was a lot, years, a lot easier than I thought because the conversation went like this. If you want to live, come with me now. And um, and they believed me enough to know that that I could keep them alive, and and I did. And that was the last time that I saw those people. Um, but uh, that was one example of some of the things that I would have to do, and uh, it took a great toll on me. Oh, I bet. And uh, and it's I like a Quentin Tarantino collapsed. movie. I, I'm picturing a Quentin Tarantino movie right now when you're telling me this. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> well, and then and then I'm picturing a young Stallone pe- playing you. <laughs> well, he's too short. Yeah, that's right. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I didn't think about that. So, who's gonna, oh, oh, you know who's gonna, you know who could play you? Um, uh, uh, what's his name again? The Rock. Well, that's not what his name is anymore. Uh, why can't I think of? His, I'm such a girl. You know who I'm talking about? Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, of course. That's who's gonna play you. Of well, the course. problem is, is that you know because of the way I look. Yeah, most of these. Uh, domestic terrorist organizations were were white supremacists, oh, white yeah, nationalists. Yeah, so yeah, Dwayne's not going to work either. <laughs> yeah, so it's not going to work too good. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Have the producers talk to me. We'll get we'll we'll, we'll get someone to play. All right. Anyway, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have some comic relief to this. Um, hey. <laughs> that's that's okay. pretty intense shit, man. Seriously. All right. So yeah. so let's 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 uh. Let's figure out how, how we got out of this. Well, um, I broke the rules and told them that I, that I, that I had cracked and I couldn't go, I couldn't do it anymore. Um, being a sober man in Alcoholics Anonymous, this has got to be a a tough job to do. Yeah. And I did not take a drink the entire time. Um, (laughs) you know, I worked those steps in reverse. So I was on my way there for sure. Yeah. And um, 
So, so when you say in reverse, that means that you are helping others and you are um, take, continue your contact with God and taking your inventory daily and go, going backwards like that. That's what you mean. Yeah. So, for example, I'm no longer working with others. I'm no longer maintaining a conscious contact with God because, you oh, know, okay, what? I see. Yeah. I'm playing with I'm playing him. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, I don't need to do any inventory. Eight, nine and ten. Forget about that. I have a piece of paper that says I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Six and seven. Well, those are the things that are keeping me alive. Well, four and five, you know, it's all about keeping secrets. Yeah. You know, so we're not going to certainly not going to talk about any of that stuff. And then three, well, it's all about my will, not God's will. And two, I'm not the insane one. I'm putting all the insane people away. Mm. And then I get down to step one, and there I am. Life is completely unmanageable, and I'm standing over the edge. And there's, uh, you know, ready to take that ultimate plunge. And, uh, and I was like, I need to get out. And it, seemingly I did. Uh, seemingly, I was able to walk away from that um, until not long later, not long after that, those those same people that I that I worked with and for knocked on the door and came to arrest me for something I did back when Moses was in the second grade. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, clearly it was something that they had known about all along and that they were going to use against me at the appropriate time. And um, so, so they, they acted like me. they were they, they acted like they were going to release you from the from from, I guess, the program, whatever it's called, from the, the mission with no problem. And so you thought you were scot free. But meanwhile, they had something on you from years and years and years ago that they're going to use against you to be like, wait, you can't get out of this. Correct. All right. So they mm-hmm. actually filed it on the last day of the, the statute of limit, uh, limitations expired. And um, so they. They held me for what seemed like 50 days. I would come to find out later that it was five days. And they gave me a choice. Uh, You either come back and work for us, um, or you take your chances in front of a judge. Oh, and by the way, uh, you're going to be done when we say you're done, and we're not going to pay you either. And, um, you know, oftentimes you hear these, these tough guys talk about, oh, you know, you never take a deal. Well, well, let me tell you something. Uh, they don't know what it's like. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't live what I lived. They didn't stand in my shoes. They didn't have to make the choices I made. I made the only choice that I thought I could make at the time. And so I agreed to that deal. And there I am. I'm already a broken guy. And so and that uh, deal is going back, getting tortured, uh, fighting against everything that you believe in. For as long as they say without pay. Correct. Awesome. Yeah. So I would do that. And I don't know how I would do it, but I would do it for the next 18 months. And I can remember um, crying myself to sleep every night. And I had this dog, this Rottweiler named Juno. And I would and I would hold on to her for dear life at night. And I would use her ears to wipe away the tears at night. And, um, and I was, I have, there's only one way that I got through this and that's through my higher power. And I can remember getting on my knees and crying out 
to God for help. And help came in the form of a man named Lonzo Lowry. Um, that man, you know, you know, Chen, you remember where we grew up, and this is important. You know, where we grew up, it, you know, it was very ethnocentric. You know, you grew up Jewish. I grew up Irish Catholic. You know, you remember what it was like. You know, the Italians stayed in their neighborhood. The blacks stayed in their neighborhood. The Jews stayed in their neighborhood. And the Irish stayed in their neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. we were all separated like that. And um, so, and that's important to this next part of the story as it relates to Lonzo. Um, because Lonzo was very high up and, and he got wind of, of, of what had happened to me. And, um, and he came and, uh, and talked to me and, and, and asked me, um, I was at the federal building and, and he's interviewing me and I won't tell him anything because I'm afraid if I, if I talk about, you know, these things that I'm going to lose my deal and I'm going to have to go face a judge and I'm going to go to jail and who knows what's going to happen to me there. And once they find out what it is that I actually did for a living, you know? Right. And, um, so Lonzo puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, I promise you, you can tell me whatever you need to tell me. And, uh, and I broke down in tears and for the next two or three hours, um, I would tell him just about everything. And, um, I can remember it. He just said, okay, go home. I'll be in touch in a little while. And, um, about four or five days later, um, he calls me up and tells me to come to come on down. And I'm thinking, you know, this is it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going away for good. You know, I'm making arrangements for someone to take my dog. And, uh, and I drive down there and, um, he takes me to a conference room. He pulls up a chair and sits across from me. And he said, first of all, I want to thank you for what you've done for our nation. I want to thank you for everything. Um, And I'm going to show you my appreciation by what I do for you right now. And uh, he flipped on the screen and um, uh, I'll just use his first name. Kevin was the, uh, was the agent that I had reported to. And, um, and after a lengthy conversation, Lonzo just simply said this, um, JB has served our nation enough. He has saved enough lives. It's time for him to save his own. He's not working for you guys anymore. Wow. Mm. And um, that man, That man saved my life. And it's important to note that Lonzo was a black man that happened to be gay. Mm. You know? And I broke down in that in that conference room and he put his hand on my shoulder again. He goes, I want to thank you so much. 
and you're going to have a good life. And I walked out of there a free man. But I was not out of the woods. Not out of the woods by any stretch. Because if I was broken before, I am ripped to pieces now. I mean, Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a thousand pieces, Jen. Mm-hmm. More pieces than, than can be picked up. And the best I could do was to sit in a chair and to stare at walls. I had to be intentional about going to meetings. It was a struggle for me to get to just get to the gym. And, uh, you know, I did not think about swallowing a drink, but there was a time when I had that revolver in my hand and swallowing a bullet looked like a great idea. And that was my first thought. And my second thought was, you know what? Call up that man that took you through those steps the first time. And that's what I did. I picked up the phone. I called him. He said, go to a meeting and share about it. And then I want you to meet me at this meeting tomorrow. So I went over to the log cabin and I raised my hand. And I I said, I'm JB. I've got 16 years sober. And I feel like blowing my head off. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the woman that walked across the room. Her name is Stacy H. She's a strong friend of mine today. She walked across the room and she brought another man with her. And those two got me through that night. The next day I would go, go meet the man that took me through the steps for the first time. And he would say, you know what? We're going to do it just like we did in the beginning. You do what I do. You go where I go. Get in the back seat. We're going to start right now. So I did that for a while. And, um, and that was all I could do. And, um, and I'll never forget one day, they asked him to share his story over at the Oasis. Um, that's, you know, our clubhouse that we go to. And um, so I'm sitting there listening to him, his story. And I, and I see this young man walk in. He's five foot nothing. He's a hundred and nothing. He's shaking. He sits right next to me and he smells. And I was like, mm-hmm. there's no way this kid's going to make it. So sure enough, after Jimmy gets done speaking, this young fellow goes up to him and, and asks him to be his sponsor. And he says, well, I'm a little short on time right now, but JB. I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks. Awesome. You, <laughs> You asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So the right thing JB. to do. That's just what you needed. That's yeah. just what you needed. So he goes, JB, I want you to meet Sean. Sean meet JB. Sponsor meet sponsee. Sponsee meet sponsor. And let me tell you something, Jen. For the next two years, that young man named Sean, Sean W., he saved my life. Aw. And as I took him through the steps, I went through them again. Mm-hmm. As the light went on in his eyes, well, you know what? They started to flicker in my eyes. You know, I was I was still on shaky ground. But I saw all of the things restored in his life, and that gave me hope. 
And then again, another person would come into my life. I like to call him General John Martin McMahon. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh and uh and then he would guide me from there. But I, I was not good. I, I was not in a good space. And um and he said to me, he goes, you know, JB, I don't know what else we can do for you. He goes, but there is one place I know where you can go. And it's a place called Onsite. Um, it is in Cumberland Furnace, Tennessee. He goes, that place changed my life. And I promise you, if you go there, it'll change your life too. And uh, so I went there, you know, Onsite. Let me tell you something. If, if you have a problem in your life, whether it's relationships, um, whether you're off center or you're dealing with some severe trauma, they have a program for you. And these people have built a super highway straight to God. I mean, that's what they did for me. What is it? Is it what kind of, do they practice a particular religion or is it a, a God it's, of your understanding? What is it? I've never heard of it. Well, it's based on, you know, it's the, it has its foundation in the 12 steps uh-huh. and it's based on, um, um, experiential therapy, and, and uh, it, it's described as a, as a therapeutic retreat center. Um, it's founded uh, by a guy named Miles Adcock. And um, let me tell you something. I've met the most amazing people of, of my life there, and their clinical director, Carlos Martinez. I mean, that man put me in a rocket ship, strapped me in, and set me straight to my higher power, huh. and, and and they saved my life, and uh, and the people I met there, they held me up, they held the room for me, um, they saved my life, they loved me, and uh, you know Miles has a in his marking video he talks about you know having the rare opportunity to be there, to see it when the light comes on in people's eyes. And, I, and if he's listening, let me tell you, brother, the light has come on in my eyes. The power has been restored. And I am undefeated. And I stand in victory today with a full heart. And, uh, and the most courageous people I've ever met were the people that I met there. You know, our hearts were ripped open and we were put back together. And, you know, that, you know, some people have a Mecca. Well, that's mine. You know, some people have a, you know, a Vatican. Well, that's mine. You know, I don't know what it is in your faith, a, Jeru- a Jerusalem. Well, that's mine. Um, uh, how long, how long, first of all, I, I really, well, we're not going to talk about me, but I practice a whole different type of thing. I mean, I, I'm Jewish by, I was born Jewish, you know, culture, but that's not really what, what I, what I practice. But anyway, how long of a program is this? Well, they have workshops. They have uh, they have one program called Milestones, which is a 30, 60 or 90 day program. Um, but the workshops are six days apiece. And I went to two of them and they are life changing. Great. They, they equate uh, a six day worship workshop to about a year's worth of therapy. JB, you got to You got to pull some strings and get them on the podcast for me. We'll talk. Yeah. We'll talk to them. Hey, I would love I would love to get them on there. Um, yeah, they are they are amazing. I mean, they are doing God's work or the higher, whatever whatever your concept of it is. 
they're uh, doing it. And when right. I tell you that they have built a super highway straight to the higher, to my higher power, they did. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, uh, it's always, okay. First of all, um, okay. So I got to get my nails done and my hair done talking about, you know, being Jewish and everything. I got to go do my Jappy things. I have like a <laughs> hair appointment and my nails and all this. So, um, but I just want to let everybody know that, I mean, I do go to a lot of the same meetings that JB goes to and, I mean, it's just like someone sharing and they're like, oh, so yeah, just like JB and the boys and, da, 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 and people referencing uh, JB and all the men that he sponsors and just all the people that he helps and just the power of example that he is as a sober man. Um, I mean, just shows like we opened the uh, show saying that under any circumstances, maybe, okay, so maybe, yeah, you, you got, you got a little you know, trauma and you got screwed in the head and, you know, it fucked you up a little bit. The thing is you didn't pick up. You didn't pick up. You didn't, you didn't drink. Just think of, think of what could have happened if you did drink, you probably would have gotten yourself killed. Well, I'll tell you what, John, what happens for me is that when I get on my knees, God always sends me a person. And in my case, he sent me an army. And they go wherever I go, and we do battle everywhere. And, you know, some of those people, I got to mention them by name right now. You know, there's General McMahon, there's uh, Stacey H., Helen H., Allie, Joe, Cass, Ashley, Samantha, Mike, and and then there's Mary. And I don't know what to say about Mary, but... You know, lightning struck and that woman came into my life and she held my hand throughout this entire process. And, uh, you know, let me just put the world on notice. Don't mess with Mary because I'll come find you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, you don't want that. And don't forget, don't forget to thank the dog. Yeah. Well, yeah. What was the dog's name again? Juno. Oh, yeah. Don't forget to thank Juno. Juno. Juno, what a special soul. So yeah, you've you've had a lot of angels in your life. Um, you definitely have have proven that there is a higher power out there if you reach out. You know, ask ask and you shall receive, and um, that that's the message I got from JB. Ask and you shall receive, and just such a power of example and such an amazing story. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was awesome, and um, you owe me a date. all right i know always the flirt all right so um i'll see you at the friday meeting okay all right thank you jen okay you have an awesome day thank you so much you too bye-bye sober exposure i'm jennifer wild and sober exposure wanted to dedicate this show to robert charles rarden shortly after we spoke to jb he gave us the news that right after the show His best friend slash roommate, Robert Charles Rarden, uh, passed away. He struggled with this disease for a very, very long time. He was a big fan of Sober Exposure. I saw him a few weeks ago. He gave me a huge hug, told me how much he loved the show. He was an amazing guitar player, collected vintage guitars, uh, loved his dogs, and was a great friend to JB and to so many people. And our hearts go out to his family. Robert Charles Rarden, a.k.a. Bobby. May you rest in peace.